Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. This is where uh, Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples, which is a Passover meal. It is also where he institutes the Lord's Supper. It is also where he predicts, once again, his betrayal by one of the twelve. So let's read together Matthew 26, 17 through 30. These are the words of God. Now on the first day of the week of the unleavened bread, of, of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would open and unfold to us in all richness and power this passage that we would understand and grasp, that we would be filled and strengthened, that we would stand in awe of you, that we would be filled with delight and praise and thanksgiving to you as you intend. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a lot going on in this passage. There is great theological depth here, and I want to consider it in two sermons. This week, we're going to consider the first and the last part of this passage, which deal with the Passover meal, and uh, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. That's verses 17 through 20 and 26 through 30. Next week, we will deal with Judas's betrayal. That's verses 21 through 25. If we try to do all of that in one sermon, we're just going to skim the surface, and we're really not even going to begin to taste the depths of this passage. So let's look first of all then as the setting of this entire dramatic meal. The setting, of course, is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's verses 17 through 19. Now, remember that the Passover uh, was a meal that was held in conjunction with the tenth and final plague uh, that God brought upon Egypt to bring his people out of bondage, out of the power of Pharaoh. 
And the final plague was the death of the firstborn. And we, as we've already seen, the death of the firstborn is really a symbolic death. It's a real death of the firstborn, but it really pictures the death of everybody in the family. And that was the plague that finally broke Pharaoh's power and led to the exodus of the children of Israel out of the bondage and affliction of Egypt. Now, God prescribed that his people, each household, or if the household was too small, then they could join with a neighboring household. They were to pick out a lamb or a kid that was perfect and without blemish, and they were to kill it on the prescribed day. They were to roast it, and they were to put its blood on the posts and the lintel, that's the cross piece, of the front door to the house. And, of course, that's a picture of the household, everyone in it. They were to roast the lamb and eat it in haste. They were to eat it with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. They were to eat it with their belt on their waist, with their sandals on their feet, and with their staff in their hand. There would be no sleeping that night. Uh, God was going to go through Egypt. The firstborn of every house that did not have the blood of the Passover lamb was going to die. The children of Israel were going to come out that very night. So they were to eat in haste, staff in hand, sandals on feet. You're leaving tonight. You're never going back. Your life is going to change forever. Life is going to begin anew for you. And so God also specified that this would be the beginning of the year for them this month in which the Passover occurred. So the Passover is going to be the beginning of new life for Israel. Life is going to start all over. And every single year as they would celebrate the, uh, the, um, the calendar, the festal calendar of Israel, um, it would begin and their year would begin with Passover. And so the message very clearly is this is where life begins. This is where new life begins, and that's how you are to reckon life forever after that point. This is where life starts for you. And God commanded that Passover was to be commemorated yearly in conjunction with a new feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And beginning with Passover, and then for six days thereafter, uh, the people were to eat unleavened bread, and they were to rid their houses of all leaven, get all the leaven out. To commemorate the Passover, the Jews over the years developed a prescribed liturgy. Now, this is hinted at in the Bible in various places where God tells fathers, when your son asks you, what do these things mean? then you are to explain these things to them. So the Jews took that, and they came up with a prescribed liturgy, and the oldest child would ask questions to the father about the meaning of these things, the meaning of the various foods, the meaning of Passover as a whole, the meaning of unleavened bread, and so forth. And the father would basically tell the story of how God brought Israel out of bondage in the Exodus and would tell them about the first uh, Passover. Now, this has been going on for over a thousand years by this point, every single year. There were three feasts a year in which uh, the people of Israel were to come and uh, uh, return to Jerusalem. God prescribes that head of households were to do that. He, uh, all were invited, including children. Remember the family of Jesus uh, traveled to Jerusalem uh, when he was a child. He's a child. His mother's there. They're all there. Um, it's just that some of the Israelites lived far, far away. It was a hard journey, and God did not insist that everybody had to come. 
But basically, now the Jews are scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, in the time of Jesus. But as we've already mentioned, the population of Jerusalem would swell by many fold at the time of Passover. And the Passover, as I mentioned, was the beginning of the calendar and it was the beginning of the feast calendar, which would start with Passover and you'd have Passover, uh, you would have Sabbath, which was on Saturday, and then on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, you would have first fruits. So it came at the time, at the very, very beginning of the spring harvest. This is the barley harvest. So this is the cold weather uh, crops. And so the very first sheaves of barley would be beginning to be ripe. And they would bring the first fruits in on that first day of the week on Sunday and wave it before the Lord. Now we know that um, Passover is fulfilled in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he dies on the same day that the lambs are all killed for Passover. Remember, the Jewish day began at sunset. So they're eating this Last Supper on the very day that the lambs are going to be killed later on in the following afternoon. That's the same time that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be crucified. That following evening, uh, with Jesus uh, ha having already died on the cross, that is when the Jews will celebrate the Passover. Jesus is celebrating it one day early with his disciples because obviously he's not going to be available on the next day. So he's celebrating it at this time. But just like uh, the Jews in the first Passover who had to eat uh, with their sandals on their feet because there's not going to be any sleeping that night, there's not going to be any sleeping this night for the disciples. Jesus predicts he's going to be betrayed. They're going to leave out from here as we see. They, they sing a hymn. Uh, they leave out. They go to the Mount of Olives. He's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's going to come out of that garden. Judas is going to lead uh, the chief priests and officers there. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried early the next morning. He's going to appear before the, the high priest. He's going to go before Herod and Pilate and so forth. There will be no sleeping this night. So life is going to change forever. But in the festal calendar, so you have the Passover, you have first fruits. First fruits was fulfilled in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits. So he is the very first of that spring harvest. Now, from the, from the Sabbath, which was Saturday, the day before, God says, okay, you count seven Sabbaths. That's 49 days, and then you add one more day, which brings you to the first day of the week, to Sunday, and that is 50th day, that is Pentecost, all right? And so the Pentecost would come in conjunction with the Feast of Weeks, and that came at the conclusion of the spring harvest. So now all the barley is in, the full spring harvest is in. And God specified at that point that you will bring two new loaves of bread, and these loaves of bread will be leavened, okay? So the leaven will be in these loaves. So you have loaves being presented. Then you go through the summer into the fall, and you have the last of the great feasts, which was the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and that came at the conclusion of the fall harvest. Now all the harvest is in, and also in conclusion with that feast came the Day of Atonement. So what you have here is this is the beginning of the calendar. Here's how you're to reckon your life. Here's how you reckon your days. Life starts all over for you. Life is new. You think about what Paul says in the New Testament. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Everything is new. So everything is new for them. And the whole festal calendar is about life. Life coming out of death. Life coming out of a substitutionary death. Life coming out of the substitutionary death of the 
a Passover lamb on the front end and of the two goats that died on the Day of Atonement on the back end. So the whole thing is bracketed by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the picture. This sacrificial animal, this substitute, this one has died for you. And out of this death comes your entire life. And so life is celebrated, first fruits. And then the day of Pentecost with the two new loaves of bread, uh, newly leavened. And then the full harvest comes in. This whole celebration of life flows from these two sacrifices, which of course are pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews have been celebrating the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for well over a thousand years now. And they have this prescribed ritual in which the events of the first Passover and the Exodus are recounted. Now, in this Passover celebration, imagine what a shock it would have been, not only for Jesus to predict that he's going to be betrayed, and we'll talk about that in more detail next week, but also for him to change the liturgy. He changes the questions, or at least he changes the answers. All of a sudden, instead of talking about what God did so long ago in the Exodus and the Passover, Jesus begins talking about himself. He says he's going to be betrayed. He takes bread. He breaks it. He, he institutes a new meal, a new Passover meal. He breaks the bread. He passes it out. He says, take, eat. This is my body. He takes the cup. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So... It would have been a real shock to the disciples to change this uh, tradition and liturgy that had been there for so long. But what Jesus is doing is he's drawing all the meaning of the Passover, all the meaning of the Exodus onto himself. He says, it's all about me. It's about my self-giving of myself in death as the true Passover lamb so that you can have life, so that you can be brought from bondage into freedom, a bondage that is much deeper than you uh, even understand. And so Jesus says it is about his death. And so he institutes this new meal. If God instituted a meal in the Exodus in the Old Testament to commemorate that and to point forward, and you think about how much time and trouble God did, went through to set that up. How much time was involved in the setup of the Exodus? Well, his promises to Abraham that his children are going to be in bondage in Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years, at least 400 years counting from the time that Abraham went down into uh, Egypt. So this is, this is a long, long setup. Of course, God sends Joseph into Egypt. And eventually, uh, Jacob and all the patriarchs end up there because there's a great famine. If they don't go there, they're going to die. So they end up down in Egypt. Through the ministry of Joseph, Pharaoh becomes a believer. That's quite clear if you read with eyes open when um, Joseph, Joseph brings his father Jacob uh, and his, all of his brothers down into Egypt. He, he alerts Pharaoh, and Pharaoh comes uh, to meet uh, Jacob. Jacob doesn't come to meet Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes to meet Jacob. And um, Joseph goes out of his way to tell his father and his brothers, when Pharaoh asks you, what you do, you are to say, we are shepherds and we are the sons of shepherds, basically for many generations. Okay? Now, shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. 
So that's not something you would want to announce to Pharaoh. Joseph goes out of his way and says, tell him that you're shepherds. Tell him that you're the sons of shepherds. And yet, when Pharaoh meets Jacob, we're told that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Well, the book of Hebrews gives us the way that works. The greater blesses the lesser. For Pharaoh to seek and receive a blessing from Jacob, the shepherd, an abomination to the Egyptians, is for Pharaoh to acknowledge that Jacob is his superior, his greater. And that's what I'm saying. You see all these little signs that that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Joseph, was a believer in the one true God of Israel through the testimony of Joseph. But by the time we get to the Pharaoh of the Exodus, of course, that has changed greatly. So you really see, it's not just that you're dealing with an, with an unbeliever in that Pharaoh, you're dealing with an apostate. You're dealing with someone who has turned away from the truth and turned away from the faith of the one true God, which his great-great-grandfather believed. Okay. So, Jesus is taking all of that meaning, you've got all of that set up, all of the plagues, all of the bondage, all of the making of bricks and making of bricks without straw. You have this long wind-up of ten plagues, not one, ten that stretch out over time and finally the last plague and then God brings his people out and then you have Pharaoh chasing them and you have them going through the Red Sea on dry ground and you have Pharaoh and his army being swamped by the water and being drowned. You have them coming out the other side and going to Sinai and you have the pillar of fire going before them and then going around behind them to protect them and you have the pillar of fire making it daytime and light for the Israelites and darkness for the Egyptians. You have all of that going on. All of that is God's own way of teaching His people and all mankind about sin, about bondage, and about salvation. That's quite a wind-up. That's quite a picture. And you can see why the Jews, for so many years, they were defined by that. They're always talking about what God did in the Exodus. In times when they feel barren and that God's not working among them, what do they look? They're always looking back to the Exodus, the days when God showed his power, when God showed his might. And yet it says in the Old Testament, God pointing forward to the New Testament, he says, the day will come when you will no longer refer to me as the God who brought you out in the Exodus. Because there's going to be a new event that's going to be so great and so powerful that it's going to dwarf that exodus, believe it or not. And you're not going to talk about it anymore. You're going to talk about the new one. You're going to talk about the new exodus. And of course, in Luke, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says that Moses and Elijah appeared and were speaking to him, what are they talking to Jesus about? What's he talking to them about? It says they were talking about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, it's an interesting thing biblical typology and you have to remember that typology is a little different than symbolism because a symbol doesn't have to have any actual reality to it it can just be something to which we assign some kind of meaning and that's what modern uh, uh, liberal theologians do with the various uh, acts of the gospel the virgin birth it's not true it's just a symbol it's an idea that inspires us. The resurrection is not true, but it's a symbol. It's an idea of starting over again and life beginning again. And you can always turn a new leaf. 
But that's not what typology is about. Typology is about real events, real things that really happened, which also in the providence of God point toward a greater meaning. Now in the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter tells us that Noah's flood, in addition to being a real historic event, and I would point out that every culture that has ever been discovered or studied by archaeologists and anthropologists has a story of a worldwide flood. Isn't it amazing how all these people can make up the same myth all over the place? They all have the same one. So he says Noah's flood, I mean, talk about a great event. Everybody dying except for one household Volcanoes, eruptions, the fountains of the deep breaking up, raining, pouring, the whole earth being covered by water. Talk about a great event. Peter says, yes, it was a great event. It's also a type, which means it points to a greater reality. He says it's a type of what? It's a type of Christian baptism, he says. It's a type of Christian baptism. Now, the way that we would reckon you think, man, you talk about getting things backwards, because remember, the type is always less than the reality it points to. So Peter is saying Noah's flood is less than Christian baptism. Noah's flood is small compared to Christian baptism to which it's pointing. And that to us would seem backwards, but it's not backwards. Because God flooded the world. He took away the unrighteous. He established the righteous. But that was not enough to really change the world. It was not really enough to change hearts. It was not enough to prevent another fall with Noah's son Ham. And wickedness filling the earth once again, conglomerating at the Tower of Babel. It was not enough to change that. But Christian baptism is. You see, through baptism, God is flooding the world once again, one person at a time. Except this time, he actually changes people's hearts. He really, really makes the world new. Now, you have to think about Passover the same way. One lonely man dying on a Roman cross... What difference could that make? What is one lonely man, a Galilean, an itinerant preacher, hanging on a cross compared to dividing the Red Sea? Compared to all the firstborn of Egypt dying? What could one lonely man hanging on a cross be in comparison with that? Well, you see, we reason the wrong way. Because in Jesus... The power of the true Pharaoh, the power of Satan. Satan, the power behind Pharaoh. The power that enslaves within. The power that enslaves people and makes them think they're free when they're not. Satan, the Pharaoh who has the power to take Israel and turn her into Egypt within. So that she crucifies her own Messiah, the real Moses. That power is broken by this lonely man hanging on a Roman cross while all the festivities and rejoicings are going on in Jerusalem. Here's this lonely man hanging on a cross because he's going into the grave and he's coming out, but he's not going to come out the same way he went in like Lazarus. That's resuscitation. He's going to go where no one has ever gone before. He's going to burst out the other side in resurrection life. He's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to be crowned. God's going to give him all authority in heaven, on earth, commit all judgment into his hands. So heaven and earth are going to begin anew. The calendar starts all over. So you see that when 
when, uh, as Christianity began to influence and shape uh, the world, starting the calendar over so that we refer to everything as either being before Christ or A.D. Anno Domini, you know, upon the advent of our Lord, that's not a postmodern power play. It's just telling the truth. I mean, that's the way it is. And this modern effort and uh, modern conceit to start calling uh, everything CE, common error, uh, <laughs> is futile. It's futile. You know, it's, it's high rebellion, it's conceit, but it's futile because it doesn't actually do anything. Jesus dying actually did something. So, so Jesus, him dying on the cross, the exodus he brings about is far, far greater than all these great events that we read about in the book of Exodus. And the point, of course, is this. It's the one that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ is our Passover. Christ is Passover. Christ is the one to whom all the Passover pointed. And Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now, so he institutes a new meal that is appropriate to living after that reality rather than before it. The first meal is pointing people toward what Jesus is going to do. The Lord's Supper is also a Passover meal, but it's pointing back to what Jesus has already done. But by looking at the cross of Christ and also looking back to the Exodus and the Passover which God gave as a type, it helps us to triangulate and to understand the richness and the fullness of what Jesus has done for us. So let's look at this new meal that Jesus institutes and, and, and in doing so basically says, I am the Passover lamb. I am the Passover who is sacrificed to you and I bring about the true and great exodus and deliverance from sin and deliverance from the true Pharaoh. Verse 28, he says, this is for the remission of sins. His blood, he says, is shed for the remission of sins. Now, I mentioned for, before that Joseph's Pharaoh was a convert. He's a believer. And you remember how he treated Israel. He gave them the best of the land, the land of Goshen. So they're treated great under that Pharaoh. He honors them. But over time, the Pharaohs apostatize and turn from the faith. But so does Israel. And this is a fact that you have to look for. If you look in the book of Joshua to the very important and well-known passage where Joshua says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He also says this right before that well-quoted verse. He says, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river, in other words, up to just a few days ago, and in Egypt. Put away the gods that your fathers served in Egypt and in the 40 years in the desert up to just a few days ago. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Israel had also apostatized in Egypt. And so Israel's bondage was a result of her own sin. Her political bondage was a picture of her spiritual bondage. And so her real bondage was not a political issue. It was a spiritual issue. She had turned away from God. 
She was worshiping the gods of the Egyptians, okay? Where do you think they got the idea of a golden calf? At the base of Mount Sinai, after God has done all these remarkable things and brought them out. When Moses is tarried up on the mountain, where do they come up with this idea? They were very used to this idea. They were practiced at worshiping idols. And we see that they continued to worship idols, many of them being a jaundiced and an embittered uh, generation. They continued to worship idols during the 40 years in the wilderness. Okay. Here's the next point we need to see. Israel cannot be freed from Egypt. She cannot be freed from Satan unless her sins are dealt with. There must be remission of sins. You see, if Israel is simply a victim of bad politics, like is taught in liberation theology today, basically all evil is a, is a matter of bad politics and bad economics and we need to have social justice and all this kind of stuff. We do need social justice, but we need social justice that God brings about that starts with regenerate hearts. Social justice is not something you can bring from the outside in. You can't take somebody on the bottom and simply put them on the top and call it social justice. That's the history of the world. First the Babylonians are on top. Then the Medo-Persians are on top and the Babylonians are on the bottom. Then the Greeks are on top and the Medo-Persians are on the bottom. Then the Romans are on top and the Greeks are on the bottom. I mean, how long do you want to do this? We've been doing this forever. It doesn't change anything. That's not social justice. Satan loves that kind of social justice. It's what gives him power. It's just turning, 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 switching sides, switching clothes, putting one on top, somebody else on the bottom. It doesn't change anything. If Israel's problem is simply bad politics, then she doesn't need the Passover blood. She doesn't need ten plagues and ten signs. Nine will be enough to demonstrate God's power over the political powers and injustice over her. But that's not enough. Nine plagues is not enough. There's a tenth, which basically says you deserve to die. And if it's just a political problem, and if it's just an Egyptian problem, then Israel does not need to slay the Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. She doesn't need that. But God is quite clear that Israel is in the exact same boat as Egypt. If you don't believe, if you don't kill the lamb, if you don't put the blood on the doorpost, if you don't eat the lamb, you die as an Egyptian. It doesn't matter who your daddy was. It doesn't matter if you've got Abraham's blood in your veins. In heart, you're an Egyptian. Okay? And it's also true, it's clear, we're told in the Exodus that there was a mixed multitude that came out with Israel. In other words, there's a bunch of Egyptians who believe. And they say the God of Israel, the God of Moses, is the true God. We're going with them. Egyptians who believe become Israelites at heart. Israelites who disbelieve are Egyptians at heart. And they are treated accordingly. So only the blood provides remission of sins. Only the blood brings about Passover. And remember, who, who is going through and bringing death on every household? God's very clear. I, I will go through the land. 
God says, I will go through the land. And so we start getting the picture. God is the one who brings judgment for sin, but God is also the one who provides the Passover lamb. So only the blood causes judgment to pass over. But the blood is not your own blood. Your own blood, no matter what your bloodline is, your own blood will not bring about Passover. Only the blood of the Passover lamb. Now there's a modern theology in vogue today, very much in vogue today, that says Christ died simply to deliver us either from hostile spiritual powers or else from our own destructive ways and not to pay the penalty for our sin. And this theology reasons in a very condescending way that the idea of God inflicting wrath, of God inflicting punishment for sin, that that's primitive. And it's ungodlike. It's beneath God. It's not fitting for a divine being. But again, if that theology is true, there would be no need for a Passover lamb for the children of Israel. But they needed a Passover lamb. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, had to die. His blood had to be spilt for the remission of our sins. And the love of God is not shown in the fact that he doesn't really care. The love of God is not shown in that he doesn't care about evil. He doesn't care about sin. He just wants everybody to be nice and start behaving. That's not what it says. We in our confession today say that God commands us to abhor evil. Abhor evil. Why did God allow sin in the first place? You know, we're never really given that answer, but I can tell you part of the answer is so that he can show us who he is and he can show us who we're supposed to be because we're supposed to hate evil. Why is there evil? So God can bury it. That's why. So the love of God is not seen in the fact that he has a bland love. God's love is shown in the fact that he provides his son, and his son provides himself as the Passover lamb. So God's love is a fierce love. It is a fierce love. It is fierce in its hatred of evil, and it is fierce in its love. So much so that he gives his only begotten son. So it is for the remission of sins. The blood also, Jesus says his blood is the blood of the new covenant. Verse 28. Jesus' death and the spilling of his blood inaugurated the new covenant. What is the significance of the new covenant? I'll give you three principal things. Number one. Our sins are permanently removed. Not temporarily covered over. The book of Hebrews tells us very pointedly that all of the sacrifices under the Old Covenant system, they didn't really take away sin. All of those forgiven saints in the Old Testament, like David, Moses, Abraham, and others, those sacrifices, uh, they pointed forward to Jesus. And anybody forgiven in the Old Testament was forgiven because they believed the promises of God and what he told them pointing forward to, to the Christ, and their, that faith was manifested for, by them bringing the sacrifices that God specified. But this is the, what it says in Hebrews 10. The law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very essence of things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Because then you wouldn't have to keep repeating the sacrifices. 
But those sacrifices, they carry a reminder of sins every year because you have to keep giving them. And here's the point. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Not possible. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time forward till his enemies are made his, the footstool for his feet. So our sins are permanently removed, not temporarily covered over. Number two, the Holy Spirit has been poured out in a new way, in a new way. Giving us new hearts by the writing of the law of God on our hearts. That's the way God speaks of the New Testament and the Old. I'm going to give you new hearts. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you, and I'm going to write my law in your hearts. It's no longer going to be out there. It's going to be in you. It's going to be in you. So your desires and your instincts are going to be changed and metamorphosized over time. Number three, we have a new closeness of communion with God. In the book of Hebrews, it says the whole point of the tabernacle system and the temple system with the sacrifices and nobody can go in the holiest of holies except the high priest once a year with the blood just so he said the whole point of that was to testify that the way into the holiest of holies the way into the very presence of god was not yet open why because jesus had not yet died but with the death and the resurrection of the lord jesus christ the way into the holiest the way into the very presence of god is open the, the temple veil has been torn in two, from top to bottom. And it says in Hebrews, go, go, go in. Don't stand out here. You don't need to be afraid. Go in. Go right on in there. Boldly. God's your father. He wants to see you. He's glad to see you. Go right into his very presence through Jesus Christ. The next thing we need to notice about the Lord's Supper is Jesus says, take, eat, and drink. Verses 26 and 27. Now, even in the first Passover, it was not enough to only put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. They had to eat the lamb. Okay? They had to eat the lamb. That's a way of going beyond when they would normally provide a sacrifice. The person would lay their hands on the head of the animal, which is a way of identifying with the animal. This animal represents me. This goes beyond that. You eat. You eat the animal. When you look at the sacrifices uh, in the Old Covenant, there were several different types. You had the, what's called the whole burnt offering, which really means the ascension offering. It's a worship offering. You had sin offerings, trespass offerings, and you had the peace offering. With the ascension offering or whole burnt offering, the whole, the whole animal uh, goes up to God, is consumed in the fire. Okay? That's the one Paul is picturing in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your whole selves as sacrifice to God. Your whole selves to Him. Okay, What was different about the peace offering is that not everything went up to God or to the priests. You got to share in the meal. This was a death that brought about a sweet communion between you and God. And so the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Passover death, is a peace offering. And so ingesting is an enhanced form of identifying with this Passover lamb that has died. Now, these words of Jesus would have shocked when he starts talking about his flesh. This is my body. 
This is my blood. And uh, Chris read for us from John chapter 6, where Jesus makes it very pointed. My flesh is food. My blood is drink. This sounds very cannibalistic. It's shocking. And Jesus intended to shock. Now, what is going on here? Well, you have to understand paganism, and you have to understand the belief system that produces cannibalism. Cannibalism is a pagan attempt to ingest the life of another, to get the life force of another into you. Okay? And that's based on the entirely mistaken and unbelieving notion that we can get life outside of ourselves from some other creature. Right? And that's why you'll have in cannibalism, in some cases, they even try to eat the victim alive. You know, they try to take the heart out while it's still beating and quick eat it. Because they sense, you know, you really can't get life from dead things. I mean, how does that work? How does something dead really give you life? You know, they're on to something there. And so they're trying to eat something that's still alive to try to get the life in that way. Well, in truth, life only comes from God. God is life. God is light, and God is love. There is no life outside of God. There is no light, there's no truth outside of God, and there is no love outside of God. Anywhere life shows up, or truth shows up, or love shows up, it's coming from God. Think about how God did things with Adam. He created Adam, it says he breathed the breath of life into him. Where does life come from? It comes from God. It comes from the Spirit of God, the breath of God. Then God calls Adam to begin eating, puts him in the garden, says, eat, eat. So in other words, what's going on there, if we're paying attention, is like God is saying, I'm going to continue to give you life through eating this fruit and eating this bread and eating these things. But it doesn't change the fact of where life comes from. God is the only one who gives life. An apple cannot give you life. You see, God is so faithful and so loving in the way he, and so extravagant in the way he gives life that we become deceived and scales grow over our eyes so that we actually think we get life from eating a steak or a piece of broccoli or an apple. No. Anywhere you have life, even in the greatest God-hater, the most primitive cannibal, uh, the, the, the most sophisticated uh, uh, God-hating atheist who writes books raging against God, that person gets life from God, no place else. That's where they get life. Yes, they eat. God gives them life. He gives them life. That's where life comes from. You see, when we understand that, it takes away all the conundrums we have about the Lord's Supper. Because we're going, okay, well, is, is it really the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, or is it not the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? But we have this assumption that if it is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has to be that metaphysically. And so we have a medical-physical divide. We have some Christians who believe, yes, it is really the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means it must become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ metaphysically. Otherwise, it can't really communicate anything to us. It has to become, this is the doctrine of transubstantiation, it has to become metaphysically the real body of Jesus and the real blood of Jesus, or else it can't actually give us anything. So that's where part of the church goes. The other part of the church goes, that's more of our tradition, says no, it does not metaphysically become the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it can't actually give us anything. It can't give us anything it doesn't have. It's just a symbol, it's a thought. It's connected to ideas, okay? 
which is why in that tradition the Lord's Supper doesn't come to be celebrated that much because if it's just trying to give me an idea, I can do that driving down the road in my car. I go, okay, bread stands for the body, the blood stands, I mean, the, the wine stands for the blood. That's all I need to know. But the mistake we make is in assuming that we actually get life from anything other than God, which we don't. How does Adam get life from the fruit of the garden? Because God works that together. It's the same thing. God breathes life. He gives life. That's where life comes from. So it wasn't a problem for God to immediately give life in the Garden of Eden. Why is it a problem for him to immediately give us life by this bread and this wine? It's not a problem. We're creating the problem. And it has nothing to do with metaphysics. It has to do with the spirit of God. And so when we eat and we drink, again, we are identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, in the most intimate way. We're not just laying our hand on him, touching him, taking him into ourselves, spiritually speaking, and we're becoming part of him. Interesting thing about the sacrificial system is that the sacrifices are referred to as the food of God, the food of God. Well, God, you see, is really our food because he's what gives us life, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. God gives us life. God, who is really our food? God is our food. All this other food is a picture of the goodness of God giving himself to us. God is our food. Who's God's food? We are. Sacrifices are God's food. He isn't not literally eating us. Spiritually, when we offer ourselves, as Paul says, when we offer thanksgiving through Jesus Christ, that's food to God. That's why I keep talking about a sweet-smelling aroma. I got out my Traeger grill for the first time this season the other day and fired it up and got it going and let it get up real hot to, to burn off the old fat that, you know, that's on the grill, start smoking and everything. Let me tell you something. It's like all the neighbors are out. That smells good. That is a sweet-smelling aroma. And so God is our food. We are God's food. Jesus threatens one of the churches in the book of Revelation. He says, you're neither hot or cold. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. What are we doing in Jesus' mouth that he should threaten us to spew us out? Because we are God's food. He is our food. That's the way it's meant to be. Verse 27, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. He gave thanks. He knows he's about to be crucified. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He gives thanks. This is why the, the Lord's Supper is often called the Eucharist. It comes from the Greek word that means to give thanks. And we are commanded as Christians to be characterized by thanksgiving in all things. We are to be the thankful people. But we can't give thanks about anything if we don't start here. If we don't start with the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ... What really can we give thanks for? Because we're still in our sins. We're still under the power of Satan and the power of death. It all begins with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So above all things, we are to give thanks for that. And that thankfulness then leads to we give thanks for all things because God works all things to good uh, for us. Okay. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here is unleavened bread, verse 17. The whole thing is in the context of unleavened bread. 
The thing about unleavened bread is that we are the bread. That's the point. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul says, We, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of one bread. Okay? So we are the bread. And therefore, Paul tells them, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. In Christ, we truly are unleavened. So get rid of the leaven in your lives, so that we may be a new lump. And in the same passage, he tells them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, what is leaven standing for there? It's standing for sin, of course. Leaven stands for sin. But here's what we have to understand. Leaven, according to Jesus, also stands for the kingdom of God. It also stands for the Spirit of God. He tells them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. So the Bible tells us there's two things like leaven. Sin and the kingdom of heaven. Sin and the Holy Spirit are both like leaven. In other words, they're living things which pervade, which characterize and transform everything they touch. They're living things that we can't control. They're not like normal ingredients that you would put in a recipe. They don't stand, stay discreetly in a certain space and stay there. They're not inert. They're living, and that's why just a little bit changes the characteristic of the whole recipe. Jesus says sin does that. He also says the Spirit does that. Okay, one or the other. And the point about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to not to be permanently simply unleavened, but to get out the old leaven so that the new leaven can come in. Right? Feast of Unleavened Bread. All the leaven goes. But what happens on the day of Pentecost? Two new loaves of bread that are leavened. Old leaven goes out. New leaven comes in. Get rid of the leaven of sin. That's the point. So that the leaven of the Holy Spirit is your quickening agent. That is what's giving you life. That's what's characterizing your life and shaping your life. That's what's giving flavor to your life now. That's what changes your taste and gives you the flavor of life, and it gives everybody else that flavor who comes around you. So that is the point. And let me just say a, a, a point here about um, Lent which is a period of time under, church, uh, under the church history and church calendar, uh, Christians in, in, in visualizing the coming death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's been a, a season of, uh, of giving up something in order to uh, rededicate oneself to God. But let me point this out. The point of any kind of true Lent is not to give up phony sin for a season, but to give up real sin forever. The point of any season of turning to God, the point of any true Lent, is not to give up phony sin, like Cokes, or sugar, or your favorite dish, or the favorite thing you like to do. That's not sin. That's phony sin. The point of it is not to give up phony sin for a season. The point is to give up real sin forever. And so Lent is not limited to a certain season. Okay? It's not limited to a certain season. Now, it is okay to have certain seasons. You can use the Lent season if you want. You can have other seasons in your life where you feel a special need to turn to God anew in a deep way and to take stock of your life and to really turn to Him and to, and to clean out those things which are not pleasing to God. That's using Lent or another season like that. Uh, the Bible speaks of fasting sometimes in that way. 
either in intense prayer or turning to God in a special way. It's okay to use it if you use it rightly. If you afflict your soul, whether it's during Lent or a time of fasting or something like that, do it right. Make true holiness and closeness to God your aim and make it between you and God alone. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? He said, when you fast, that's not when you go around and broadcast to everybody, I'm fasting. I'm in a time of affliction now. I'm afflicting my soul to, as a go to turn to God anew or to pray to him in a specially uh, intense and concerted way. Jesus says, if you do that, then that's the only reward you're going to get. People look at it and go, oh, wow, she is so holy and spiritual. He is so holy and spiritual. Jesus says, no, comb your hair, comb it extra well, put on your good clothes, smile. During Lent, smile. During fasting, smile. Don't let anybody know that you're doing that. Let your Father in heaven see. So the, what's the point of Lent? Go around with ashes on your head? Look at me. I'm in a special time of turning to God. I'm thinking about sin and turning away things. Look at me. I'm giving something up. I've given up my favorite dessert. What's that craziness? No, if you're going to use the season, don't put any ashes on your forehead so everybody can see. Comb your hair. Dress up. Put a smile on your face. And don't give up some faux sin. Give up some real sin. The purpose of all affliction is to grow in holiness, to grow in closeness to God. Not to invent a new kind of sin so that you can grow in hypocrisy and distance from God. That's not the point. But that's often what we do with it. So, any time is a good time to turn to God in a new and special way and to take stock of your life and to want to get out the old leaven and have the new leaven of the Spirit and the kingdom take hold in a new way. Any time's a good time for that. But when you do it, you do it to God alone. You look good. You put a smile on your face. You do that God word. And don't give up things like, oh, I'm going to give this up because I really like it. I really like that bowl of ice cream every night. I think I'll give that up. That does nothing. Why don't you give up some real sin? And if you're wondering what you should give up, why don't you go ask your loved ones? Ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your kids, ask your friends. But you'll probably have to convince them ahead of time to, to really be honest with you. But they're probably not going to be honest with you. Why? Because you're going to punish them just like you've always punished them in the past when they've tried to be honest with you. That's what we do. So you'll have to convince them that you're sincere and you're not going to punish them. If you can convince them of that, uh, then you'll, you'll get some really good ideas of some things to give up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.